0: Bibles now, if you would please, to Nehemiah chapter 11, and we are winding down our study of Nehemiah. Uh, we have just one more sermon. I'll finish the series next Sunday night. And when I began the series, you may remember that I told you that if the Bible, the books of the Bible, were put into chronological order, that Nehemiah would be one of the very last books of the Bible. What we're reading here is what took place. Uh, toward the close of the Old Testament times. And after Nehemiah, it will be 400 years before another prophet arises in Israel. And I think you know his name, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, of course, introduced the the, uh, ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at Nehemiah and what happened in Nehemiah, we might say that since this is the end of God's revelation in the Old Testament, that this is the last gasp for Israel, that's the way that you could look at it. But we actually find out that Nehemiah contains in it a shoutin' good time. One of the things that I uh, really like about uh, church and, and serving the Lord is one of the things I like is good music. I love uh, good Southern gospel music, especially. Although there's a lot about Southern gospel music not to like nowadays. But I remember back when, when I was younger that one of the things that we would do in church is we would have a quartet come and sing for us or a trio. And uh, that quartet or trio would sort of kick off a revival meeting that we were having. And those were really great times. And it seemed like that back in those days that people were much more exuberant and excited about worshiping the Lord. Today we've become a little bit more dignified in our worship. And if it looks like we're getting a little bit too excited or if our music gets a little bit too upbeat, then the straight-laced crowd kind of gets a sour look on their face. And you would think that we were heathens from the jungle somewhere if we try to have a little bit of a good time. But in Nehemiah's time, the people thought that it was time to shout. When they finished building the wall, they had a time of celebration. I'm going to talk about that in the last part of tonight's message, part number two. Actually, the message tonight's a little bit disjointed because I've got two subjects to speak about. So it'll be about 9.30 before I get done. Uh, and i actually know we're going to try to finish up rather quickly tonight. But two subjects I want to talk about. Chapter number 11 deals with a population problem in Jerusalem And chapter number 12 talks about the celebration that took place after the completion of the wall. But I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read just a couple of verses to get started this evening. Nehemiah chapter 11, we're just going to look at the first two verses of this 11th chapter. "...and the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities." And the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the reading of your word tonight. I just ask you, Lord, that you'd help me as I preach this message. May we learn something from your word that will strengthen us and encourage us. And we just thank you for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as I said, chapter number 11 uh, deals with a population problem in Jerusalem. So first of all, this evening, uh, Nehemiah put together a plan for repopulating the city. So we're going to talk about the plan that Nehemiah has for repopulating the city. Now, uh, at one time, Jerusalem was a thriving city. King David was the first one to name Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and under the reign of King David and under Solomon, uh, Jerusalem became a very important capital in the eastern part of the world. We can read scriptures about uh, things that took place in Jerusalem, and one of the things that we learn is that Jerusalem was just a beautiful city. Uh, Lots of things that we read about how beautiful that the city was, and especially during the reign of King Solomon, uh, Solomon built a lot of things there, a lot of uh, uh, buildings and the palace, and the temple. And uh, you remember the story that the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, and the Bible says that her breath was taken away just by looking at all the sights of the city. But as we know, Solomon became uh, influenced by all of his alliances that he'd made with foreign countries, with foreign governments. And Solomon began to turn away from the Lord and away from the worship of Jehovah God. And after Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two parts, a northern and a southern part. And it wasn't very long before both of those kingdoms were overrun by foreign armies. And the temple in Jerusalem, as we know, was torn down. We've been studying about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Those walls were torn down when uh, Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians. And during that time, there were 10,000 Israelites that were captured and deported to Babylon. And so the population of Jerusalem declined to a point where the only ones who were left in the city were very poor, they were very destitute. And Jerusalem became really not much more than just a refugee camp. But it was also during that same time that Jerusalem rose in its religious significance. Because the people looked at Jerusalem as the city of God. And they, that the hope was kept alive that they could go back to Jerusalem. They could rebuild the city. The walls could be rebuilt. They would have the temple again. And having that hope kept alive is what kept Judaism itself alive. That's where the efforts of men like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah come in. Zerubbabel was the one who rebuilt the temple. Ezra came and reinstituted the sacrifices. And of course, we know that Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. But there was still a lingering problem. After the walls were rebuilt, there wasn't anybody to live in the city. Uh, Many of the people, as I said, had been deported, and those that were left in the Jerusalem area had moved out of the city because there was no protection there. And so they had put down roots in, in different areas, and Jerusalem was not their home. Well, a city without people is really not much of a city. And so this is what Nehemiah faced in chapter 11. He had to put together a plan to get people to move back into the city of God. And that's what Nehemiah did. What he did was to institute a lottery system. Just like our, our selective service or our draft, what they decided to do was they would draft people who would have to live in the city. And so they chose one out of ten people who were to move back into Jerusalem. Now, you can very well imagine that that was a hardship on the families of those who agreed to move. They'd already put down their roots in other areas. They'd already established themselves. They had a different lifestyle. And now they had to become city dwellers if they moved back into Jerusalem. So how do you get people to to be willing to make such a move as that? How are they going to uproot their families? Why would they do it? Well, really, the whole key to the thing was the revival of the people. Getting people to understand that whatever God wants for their lives is the very best thing that they can do. And understanding that that following the Lord is always going to bring us better hope and better pleasures, a better life than we can ever achieve by going our own way and surrendering to our own will instead of surrendering to God. You know, much of the time, we think that the thing that's going to make us happy is if we pursue material things. If we keep pressing for the better job and we're always looking for the better lifestyle, we want a nicer house, a nicer car... And unfortunately, there are many Christians who forsake God to achieve those things. Here's what Jesus said about it in Luke chapter 18. He said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. I believe today that there's far less commitment to the to the things of the Lord and to the church than there has probably been in any other time of Christian history. We're, we're just not looking at the church as really being the center of our lives. And what many Christians have done, they've made the church simply an add-on. It's not the center. Today in preaching, it's, it's very popular for us to hear things like, the order that you should have in your life is God first, family, and then church. And many preachers extol the virtues of that particular order, and when you put it into that order—God, fa- God first, family second, church third—then it could come like, or could, or could come to the place that you may think. Well, there can be a conflict between family and church, and if there is a conflict between family and church, since family is second, then uh, the family has to win out. Well, I'm going to give you my opinion about that. I think it's wrong. I think if a person has God first. There's never a scenario where the family and the church will ever come into conflict. If God's truly first in our lives, then our family and our church will fit together. But if you want to know the real truth of the matter, even though we say God first, family first, and church third, it's really not God first. It's actually family first. And when we decide that we're even going to put our families ahead of God, then what will happen? There will come times of conflict between the family and the church. Now, I'll tell you what my practice is. We've never had a practice in our family where the church will ever take a back seat to our family. When our relatives come to visit us, they know that we're going to church. We don't stay at home. We don't entertain when when the family comes. And when God is first, you don't plan things around your family. You plan things around God. But here's the thing about it. We, we tend to think that if we plan things around God rather than our families, then that must mean that we're neglecting our family. And somehow we're going to hurt our families if we put God first. But I would tell you that the very best thing that you could ever do for your family is to always have God first in your life. And you're never going to hurt your family that way. And you're not going to hurt your family by letting them know that God is always first in your life. Well, how can we take things like this and make an application from this story that we find in Nehemiah? Well, let me point out a couple of things to you tonight as we think about repopulating the city. The first thing is that we must actively participate in our church. Actively participate in our church. Now, moving back into the city was an indication that worship was truly at the center of these people's lives. The move back in was calculated to show that these people believed that, that worshiping God was the most important thing to them. God was in the very center. Jerusalem, as we know, was a hub of activity. The temple was there, and the people couldn't go into the city and live there without, uh, while, without knowing that while they tended their fields, while they educated their children, while they pursued their recreation, they were always surrounded by the environs of their worship. I mean, you couldn't escape the temple presence there. You go by the temple every day, you see the sacrifices that are being made, and you hear the talk that's being talked, and you know that God is always present there, and so with the children of Israel, God's work overshadowed everything that they did, and so their whole lives were consumed with God, and I believe that's the way that the church needs to be. The church needs to be the hub of our activity. Now, we don't live in a temple compound like they did in those days, and some of you, May not be in this building every day. Some of you are, but most of you aren't in the building here every day. But I think the thing for us to do is to plan our whole lives around our church. Thoughts of your church ought not to be very far from your mind at any given moment of the day. I think that we ought to look for ministry in our church. I believe we need to get involved in what's going on. A person needs to take ownership in their church. They, they really have to see, I, I've got to have a part of my church. I have a working part of what God wants to do. And if you're not involved in some kind of ministry, the church, then it'll be very easy for you to fall out of church attendance. It won't be long when you don't have a job, when you don't have a part of ministry, that church attendance becomes spotty. And if you continue like that, it goes from spotty to non-existent at all. So church membership and church work are vital for a Christian's survival. Now, when you understand this, that the whole plan and program for this world, according to the New Testament, is centered in God's church, then you'll begin to understand why you can't survive without it. Now, when you see the church rightly, when you're looking at the church as you should, then your church will influence every decision that you make. Now, there's something that that I understand very clearly about living in Sonoma County, it's difficult for people to make a living in this area. There are places that you can go in the country where you can live a better lifestyle, you can have a better house, you can be more comfortable if you go there. But you know something that I'm encouraged by? I'm encouraged when I hear that young families in our in our church have made a decision that they will stay here because it's all about their church. Their life is in their church. Before you ever decide to make a move, the question ought always to be, is it about God or is it about money? Am I going where I can better serve God or am I going where I can better serve myself and my lifestyle? Just the other day, I was talking to a young man in our church and he'd been offered a job in another part of the country. Well, not another part. It's, it's local, uh, fairly local here, but too far away to come to church here. And he offered, was offered a better job making more money But as I was talking to him, he just said, it's not all about money. He said, I don't want to go where I may not be able to find a good church. And I know that there are many families that are destroyed and they drop out of church because they made a decision to go somewhere where God doesn't want them to be and they get further and further away from the Lord. But the thing about it is, you see, if you are actively participating in your church, then it'll always make it easier for you to make a decision to stay right where you are. That you'll do the very best for your family, even though you can't have every luxury and you can't ever have every toy that the world has to offer. But saying that, having said that, I know that there are some times when God does lead people away from here. And he does want them to go to another part of the country. And I would say if God's leading a person somewhere else, I would be absolutely the last one to stand in somebody's way if they can honestly say that I prayed about this and God wants me to go. I'm not going to encourage anybody to stay against God's will, but I usually find out that this is the way. It's more the person's will than it is God's will. Now, the second thing that I think that we can learn about this is that we must aggressively penetrate our community. God has really blessed Breham Baptist Church. If you haven't noticed that, He's really blessed us. Look at the location that we have. We have, I think, probably the best location of any church in this city. 38 years ago, I believe that God spoke to Harry Buer and told him to buy the property right here where we are. Back then, this area was just a cornfield. Uh, there was no electricity. The church had to be run on generators to supply the electricity. And... I think that God very well knew what would happen in a few years in this particular area. You see, if you don't think God is a God of foresight, a God who sees all things and knows all things, you're sadly mistaken. God knew exactly what would happen in this neighborhood, that we would be surrounded here with homes, and we could become a center of activity right here in this neighborhood. And so we have things that we do like Pioneer Club and the, and the Brian Baptist Christian Academy. Those things can make a difference in people's lives. We can be an attraction here. We can be a center or a hub of activity right here in Roanoke Park. Now I want to relate to you just a moment a story. Uh, maybe this would be difficult for us to implement because of housing costs in our area. But let me just give you an idea what some people do to try to impact those that are in their community. In Los Angeles, there's a pastor, uh, a black pastor, by the way. His name is Evie Hill, and he's the pastor of the Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church. Before he became a minister, he lived in Texas, and he was actually an operative for the Democratic Party. And it was his job to go out and make sure that uh, he could get the vote out. In all the areas where he was, he, he, he went out to help get the vote out for the Democratic Party. So he instituted a system where he would have a block captain in every precinct, on every street that was in that precinct, and it would be that block captain's responsibility to go out and talk to all the people who were registered voters and to get them out to the polls. Well, when he came to L.A. as a minister... he thought about that, and he he figured, well, I ought to be able to put that same kind of system into place in my church. I mean, why wouldn't that system work? And so he made an effort to impact his community. And so what he tried to do was to reach everybody in all the blocks that were surrounding him. Now, in South Central LA, where the church was located, there were 3,100 city blocks. In 1990, now I, I picked this story up from a book that I was reading. It was printed in one thousand nine hundred and ninety and at that time he had a block captain in one thousand nine hundred blocks surrounding his church that 's seventeen years ago i don 't know they might have they might have covered all thirty one hundred blocks by now. but what he did is he got a person on every block in that city around the church there those one thousand nine hundred blocks and it was their responsibility to go to the neighbors, invite them to come to church, not one time. But over and over and over again, they'd keep going back to people in their neighborhood and inviting them to come to church. Well, Evie Hill told a story about something that happened with one of his block captains. There was this one particular one that was kept inviting a man on her street time after time to church. And this fellow was getting tired of it. He didn't like the block captain coming to him, inviting him to go to church. Well, he couldn't get rid of her, so he decided that he was going to move. He was just going to move out of the neighborhood. Well, the block captain find out found out about that, and so she went down to see him on the day that he was moving. He had all of his stuff piled into the truck ready to go, and so she spoke to him and wished him well, waved goodbye as, she, as the truck drove down the street. But as soon as he got out of sight, she went into the house and she got the church directory, and she looked up the block captain in the area that he was moving to. So he called this she called this block captain and told her to be waiting outside of his house when he got there. So when he pulled up with the moving truck, there was this lady standing right there waiting to invite, invite him to church. And that's what she did. Well, this man's response to that was absolutely classic because he said, my God, they're everywhere. So wouldn't that be something if we could impact our community like that? You might remember that about a year or so ago, I was using an illustration about a church in Seoul, South Korea. This is a church that has 750,000 members in Seoul, South Korea. One of the things that this church does is whenever they are building a new apartment complex in the city, one of the families will go and rent an apartment in that apartment complex. And they will begin right then networking throughout that apartment complex, inviting people to come to church. And they start out by doing things like like paying bus fare for people so they can go to work. I mean, just doing nice things. They invite them over for for supper and, and feed them, give them a meal. And so all the time they're networking with all these different people as they move into that apartment complex. And you have to do things like that. If you're going to build a church with 750,000 people, Now, obviously they're not all meeting in one place. But you see what they put in place to try to reach people. Now, as we think about it right here, those kinds of methods may not work for us. But one thing that we could do, we could become more aggressive, we become, could become more aggressive about making Briam Baptist Church a, a place where these thousands of people that drive down Roanoke Park Expressway every day as they look over here and see what's going on in this church, that they'll want to stop in and see what's so exciting over there. What is it those people are doing? And look at Briam Baptist as a place that they want to go. And I think that it'll work. We can do it. And you know something, folks? I don't think it's going to take a rock band to get them in here. Not a rock concert. We don't need a laser light show to get people to come to church. If you didn't know this, the gospel of Jesus Christ works just fine. But it has to be coupled with care and concern and compassion for people. And if we have some of that, we can impact people. Now, you see, when your church means something to you, when your church becomes the center of your life, then you'll want to share some information about it. You'll want to tell other people. So Nehemiah had a plan to repopulate the city. And what it took was willing people that would move from those suburbs around Jerusalem and move into the city because that's what God wanted them to do. Now let's go on to the second part of the message tonight. And the second part is about the dedication of the construction. Now, dedicating the construction. Now, the ceremony for the dedication of the walls is found in the 12th chapter, beginning with verse number 27. Now, you might wonder, we've been talking about this for quite some time, but why is it that Nehemiah waited so long for this celebration? I mean, why didn't he just immediately have the celebration right after the walls were built? Because the wall was finished several weeks before the time that we're reading right now. Well, I think that Nehemiah decided to wait because he wanted the city to be repopulated. He, he wanted to have a good crowd for the celebration. He wanted to be sure that the people were revived, that they'd read the Scriptures, that they'd prayed about this, and then he was ready for the dedication. Now, let's look at a few verses. If you'll look at chapter 12, verse number 27. Nehemiah 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites out of all of their places to bring them to Jerusalem, "...to keep the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and with singing, and with cymbals, psalteries, and with harps. And the sons of the singers gathered themselves together, both out of the plain country around Jerusalem, and from the villages of Netophati, also from the house of Gilgal, Gilgal, and out of the fields of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built in them villages round about Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and purified the people and the gates and the wall." So what they did was to prepare for the celebration by sending out invitations. Let's get all the people surrounding the city to come back into the city and let's dedicate this wall. So one of the things they did was to get all of the Levites that surrounded the city to come back. Now, Levites are people who are in charge of different uh, temple ministries. Now, most of you probably know that the priests come from the tribe of Levi, but not everybody that was in the tribe of Levi was actually a priest. And so those that weren't priests, they had other responsibilities, and one of them was to prepare the temple and to lead the worship for the people. So the Levites were called, and Nehemiah put them together. They would lead in the celebration and the dedication, and the people would follow them. Now, I want you to notice first about this celebration and dedication is the procession on the wall. They had a procession to go around the wall. So Nehemiah put together this plan for dedicating. And back in those days, the, the walls of these fortified cities weren't like a wall that we would think of. I mean, the, a wall was uh, around the city was not like a garden wall that we have. It's not like a fence that you put up around your house. But instead, these walls were so thick and so wide that it was just like having a street on top of the wall. Ancient cities like Nineveh had walls that were so wide that several chariots could ride side by side right on top of the wall. So what Nehemiah did was to get all of the people up on top of this wall. He divided them into two groups, and they would make a long procession around the wall. What they would do is that one group would start this direction, and the other group would start in the other direction, and they would encompass the whole city wall, and they would meet at a certain point. So they, 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 they began to march. They met at a different spot on the wall. Uh, two groups going in different directions. One started at the dung gate. The other started at the prison gate. And then when they... Uh, or they both started at the dung gate, rather. And they met on the other side of the wall at the, at the prison gate. And when they met there, then they all marched down into the temple area. Now, why did Nehemiah do that? Why such a plan as that? Let me give you two reasons. Why Nehemiah may have decided to do it this way. The first one is to remind the people of their blessing. You see, as they marched around the wall, every person, as they're going around the top of it, could get a view of this great accomplishment. You remember what it was like when we talked about the wall before they started? The wall was broken down, the wall was in heaps. It looked like an impossible task. There's no way that they can rebuild the wall. Not only that, but their hopes were dashed whenever they thought about it because the king surely would not allow them to rebuild the wall. Remember, it's not in the best interest of the king to have a fortified Jerusalem. But now as they march around that wall, they're reminded of how God was in the building process and how that God was controlling the king's heart. And that God had given them the strength that they needed to complete that wall. And so that's a reminder of how God so graciously watches over his people. Everything that his people need, God is able to supply. And it doesn't make any difference how big a mountain that you have to climb. God's able to help you get over it. And so those people could see that. And they saw God's blessings as they marched around the wall. But then there's another reason, I think, why Nehemiah decided to do this. And the second one is to refute their enemies. Now, do you remember what the enemy said? What about that old sarcastic Ammonite by the name of Tobiah? Remember what he said? He said, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. But that wasn't true. Because now this wall is so strong that these people are thousands of them are up on top of the city wall. And they're standing there and they're marching and they're going around the wall in defiance of those people who said that it couldn't be done. So there were people that mocked them. But God said it doesn't matter. God works. God does things. God puts our enemies to shame. You know, the Apostle Peter told us that in the last days there will be people that will mock Christians, because of our belief in the second coming of Christ. And people will be saying, where, where is that Christ? Where is he? There is no second coming. Jesus isn't coming again. But Peter says, oh, yes, he is coming. And the mockers are going to be put to silence. And when he does come, he's going to burn this whole world up. And he'll shut the mouths of mockers forever. So I think about the procession that these people made around that wall. I think back to a time about 30 years ago. Our church in Kentucky was building a new building. Uh, we'd outgrown the one that we were in, and so we uh, had to build another building. And so we decided to sell the building that we were in. We sold it to uh, another Baptist congregation, and this was actually a black Baptist congregation. They had a building that was several blocks away from ours. They were meeting in just a really a rundown place. It wasn't very attractive at all. The building that we sold them was a very nice building. It's just that we'd outgrown it, so we had, to, we had to build another one. But we sold this building to that black Baptist church. And I remember that on the day that they were to take possession of their new building, that all of those people began marching. Several city blocks away, the whole church began marching down those city blocks, and they marched right up to the church doors, and they claimed that building as their own and for the Lord. They had a great time of celebration. And I'm just reminded of that when I think about these people marching along the top of that wall. But then lastly, I want us to see this, and that is the program of worship. Verse number 27 again says, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites out of all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to keep the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, psalteries, and with harps. So what did they do with the worship here? Well, first, they had songs of rejoicing. There was lots of singing. There were lots of instruments. Verse 42 says that the singers sang loud. And I don't think that that means that they just shouted at the top of their lungs and everything was incoherent. But this was beautiful singing, loud, beautiful singing. The people were exuberant in their worship. And so you could tell that they were enthusiastic about what God had done for them and about who their God was. And in the last part of verse 43, it says the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. That came through their music. Now, I don't want to go into the whole music question tonight, but let's talk about it for just a moment. Music is extremely important to our worship. Music is instrumental. And I'm not using that as a pun, but music is instrumental in setting the mood for worship. It gets people prepared for the preaching of the Word of God. And for that reason, I think that our that our singing ought to be enthusiastic. Our singing ought to come from the heart. But as we're enthusiastic in it, and as we sing loudly, our music also ought to be reverend. It ought to be uplifting. Our music ought not to be sensual so that it it, it appeals to the, the sensual appetites, and not just to the emotions, but it should be music that honors God. Now, that doesn't mean that music shouldn't... Uh, affect your emotions in any way, because certainly it does. I get very emotional over music many times. So I think it's good for music to, to affect our emotions in some ways. Now, I know some churches that, that they want their music to be so dry that they just choke on their solemnity, and, and they, they just don't care anything at all about being exciting in their worship. Then you have, clear on the other extreme, people who like that head-banging music so that you can't understand a word that's being said. Well, music ought to be uplifting, Music appeals to people differently, but there ought to be some reverence there, and music always ought to honor God. And then I might say this: as we looked at the look here at the different musical instruments that they use, that using different kinds of musical instruments are fine. Now, we get in uh, you know people get in a huff and get in arguments over using different musical instruments in the church. Some say that a piano and an organ, barely the clavonova, is acceptable. And they get upset if you try to use other kinds of of, uh, musical instruments. If we were to put a set of drums in the church, silence. Some of you would faint dead away. I mean, you'd die right now if I said we're going to have a set of drums in the church. Well, let me just say this. Well, drums are neither godly nor ungodly as a musical instrument. They become so by the person who plays them and the purpose and the way that they play them. Now don't get worried, don't get excited. I'm talking about putting in a set of drums. But what I'm telling you is this, is that it is, it, it's wrong to try to twist the scriptures to prove something that isn't there. And it's much worse to do that than it would be if we got up here with a set of drums and head banging and everything else. That would not be as bad as twisting the Scriptures to prove something that they don't say. So there are other musical instruments that can be used in worship. Here we see they had different things. cymbals, it says, and psalteries and harps. In another place, it says that they had trumpets. Now, can you imagine us having cymbals? symbols? I, we might do that sometime. I don't know. It would certainly be biblical. And psalteries. Do you know what the nearest thing that there is to a psaltery that we have today A guitar. There's nothing wrong with using a guitar in the services. I mean, if it enhances the worship, those things are all right. So they had songs of rejoicing, and that's a great thing, using different musical instruments. And if we use them in a godly way, then those things are fine. But the next thing that they have here are sacrifices of redemption. Verse number 43 says, "'Also that day they offered great sacrifices.'" This is one thing that Israel did. Whenever they got together, there was a sacrifice. And the reason why is because that's always a reminder to them of the once-for-all sacrifice that would come, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why when we get together, we don't just stop with singing. We don't stop with, with the uh, taking offerings, and we don't stop with the praying, but we also preach the Word of God. Every time that we get together, there ought to be the thoughts of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the preaching gets us into that. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not saying that every time that a church gets together, they've got to have a sermon. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we always ought to have the attitude and foremost in our minds is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And if we ever forget that and substitute other things to where they become more important and having our social church and all that is more important than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then we've missed our purpose. We've missed the purpose of the church. We can't ever forget that. Now, here's what happens. When God's people get together, when they worship, when they sing praises, when they pray, when they're reminded of salvation, here's what happens. The joy of the Lord is heard afar off. Here in Jerusalem, as we're reading the story, they heard that singing, they heard the joy, they heard all that was going on, and you could hear it for miles and miles around. Folks, when people of Berean Baptist Church have that kind of attitude, that we want to worship the Lord, then the joy of Berean Baptist Church will begin to affect our community. Now, here's your last statement for tonight. When our dedication... I don't know what's going on with this. When our dedication to God expands, our testimony for Christ also expands. Now, do you see what a difference it would make if we decided to do this? That instead of God first, family second, church third, that it was God first, God second, and God third? What a difference that it would make in our church. If our people were consumed... With the worship of God, like Christian people ought to be, so that everything that we do has Christ at its center, I promise you this is what will happen. Our testimony will expand. There will be people one to the Lord in this area if God's people will just simply do this, have their hearts in tune with the Lord, and have God first, 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 so there really is no second. It's God first and we will impact our community for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for what we're able to learn from your word tonight. I just ask you, Lord, that you would help Brian Baptist Church, all of our members, that Christ would be the very center of our lives, that we'd always be looking at God first, no matter what we do. We would never make a move unless we know that it's in your will. I just ask you, Lord, that you would help your people tonight speak to us as we sing this invitation. Help us to think about what the people in Israel did, how they were revived, and how that they impacted people that were around them because of the joyfulness of their worship and knowing that they were serving God. Bless this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.